What is a thick fog, Frank? Well, of course, you're from England, right? Or you're from England, so, you know. <laughs> Was that addressing the thick or the fog? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the close-to-government shutdown podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on January 12th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host, who unfortunately is exhausted from his second job as Baltimore's only full-time snowplow driver, and is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Just a quick reminder that uh, if you go to twill.com, there's a link so that you can become a patron of uh, uh, the podcast art as we practice it, and... And uh, even if you don't want to do that or buy any merch, just going to iTunes and rating the show will also help and get the news out about it. Frank, uh, we welcome back today our good friend Zach Buck, professor of law and the Wilkinson Junior Research Professor at the University of Tennessee College of Law. There he teaches bioethics and public health, torts, healthcare finance and organization, healthcare regulation and quality, and fraud and abuse. Sounds like he needs someone to go in and, and talk to the associate dean. Um, if he really teaches all that. Um, he's producing really interesting scholarship relating to our ever-present waste, price, and cost issues. Uh, good friend. So good to have you back on the pod, Zach. Thank you so much, Nick and Frank. It's it's always a pleasure to be here. So um, I have a few things to, uh, to just throw out for your entertainment or something uh, a little more critical. Um, something I missed uh, from a couple of weeks ago. The um, D.C. District Court has finally sent packing the EEOC rules on incentives for disclosure of medical and genetic information. Uh, recall that these were promulgated in 2016, interpreting ADA and GINA provisions, and they allowed employers to impose up to 30% penalties if employees failed to complete health questionnaires, etc. The AARP challenged the regs, saying they weren't voluntary, and if you want more on that issue, go back to Wendy Mariner uh, talking on Twill 55. Back in August of this year, the court sort of agreed with that position, but rather than vacate the rules, the judge was somewhat concerned that employers would have already relied on them. So he sent them back to EOC for additional reasoning and a sort of timetable for reconsideration. They just didn't really give him anything to work with. And so he's now gone back and vacated them effective uh, January the 1st, 2019 and ordered EEOC to promulgate new rules by the end of August 2018. Now, by this time, I'm falling asleep. But presumably, Frank, as someone who teaches ad law, uh, you're keeping track of this because it looks like something sh should be in an ad law casebook. <laughs> yes. It is very interesting to see this level of you know supervision and uh, oversight and see what in particular might happen uh, if uh, they just tell them to pound sand. You know, if the EEOC just says, I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> Etc. So, yeah, I'll be following it closely. So, secondly, and something of an aside from our typical lightning topics, I took some of that wellness rule commentary from a health affairs blog post by Tim Jost, um, our special guest here on the pod, episode 81. And most of you, dear listeners, probably have shown similar reliance on Tim's amazing work over the years. 
Well, on January the 2nd, he retired his health affairs blog. It's going to be taken over by Georgetown's uh, Katie Keith. The day after his retirement, health affairs published a list of his greatest hits. 15 culled from his more than 600 posts that started before the Affordable Care Act was passed. And I just thought it was important to pause and just say thank you, Tim, for all of that extraordinary work. He retired from teaching a few years ago, as you know, um, but I, I hate to think we're going to be completely without his work. But anyway, we'll include a link to uh, that greatest hits list in the show notes. Yes, it is fantastic to recognize Tim. And thanks so much for making note of that, Nick, because um, I cannot uh, express how deeply grateful I am for the yeoman's labor that uh, he did at that blog, both making sense of Obamacare and then making sense of the first year of uh, chaos uh, in 2017. And uh, particularly, I just remember recently his post on the association healthcare plans mm-hmm. and the multi-employer welfare association plans. That's something that, you know, maybe maybe one or two people in the country, I think, could do as well. Maybe it's just him. Uh, and he did just an amazing job. Uh, and that was really a great service. I would also like to echo uh, Frank's comments as a, as a junior health law faculty member over the last couple of years trying to understand some very complicated topics. I, I also wanted to, to personally thank uh, Tim on behalf of many of us who practice and uh, teach uh, in the area. Um, he's been he's been really, really important uh, on a day-to-day basis uh, for me. All right. Now something that Frank should know tons about. Apparently, Maryland is going to have its own individual mandate. Um, Maryland lawmakers have proposed to uh, reverse, and it's the, their words that follow, the sabotage of the Affordable Care Act by transforming the expiring federal individual mandate into a different state mandate, whereby it seems that you'll receive a tax time notice and you're given the option either to pay a penalty and get nothing back, or the penalty will be used as a down payment to help them buy health insurance. Um, I don't know how much press there's been in your fine state about this, Frank, or whether you have anything to add. It has not gotten a ton of press here, but I mean, I think it's something that is a really interesting idea in terms of thinking about this down payment and sort of alleviating the punitive nature of this. I mean, what comes first to mind is just the background of health expenditure that gets talked about so little, but that we really need to think about bankruptcy as the backdrop. Um, and I think of, you know, Alison Hoffman's work as excellent work that tries to expose that. And I think what it's really bringing to the fore is the fact that for a lot of people, and I remember writing about this even 10 years ago and getting into a little bit of a debate with some insurance law scholars about whether you could be rationally uninsured. And at the time, the insurance law scholars really brought me up short by saying, look, it is quite rational for a lot of people that have very few assets, um, very low income to, if they're really, they're only imaginable uh, bad health outcome is something that would lead to, that would be a problem that could be addressed uh, pursuant to Amtala to just get that care and, um, you know, go bankrupt on it. Of course, the, the more one understands about the nature of, of serious illness and the potential for chronic illness to set in, even for young people, you know, the, the less that makes sense. Um, but it does seem as though, you know, th- this sort of uh, down payment approach might be a way of alleviating the punitive aspect of this while still trying to, you know, get everybody into the risk pool. Well, I think it also gives um it's it's a nice message isn't it it's it's a remessaging of the mandate which the obama administration never really sold very well maybe they didn't think they need to sell it because it didn't really cause any problems in massachusetts 
So I think they sort of figured they wouldn't have to worry too much about it, but it was immediately used as a, as a stick to beat the ACA. Yes, I think that's right. And I think it's something to watch really closely in terms of a uh, requirement of responsibility that is not simultaneously compounding the woes of people that don't have health insurance. Actually, I think there's a, there's a broader point there as well, Frank, in that um, although we are distressed that states are having to introduce these new sort of ameliorative provisions, you are seeing some experimentation here. Alas, I think the only positive experimentation is going to take place in blue states, and it's it's going to be ugly elsewhere. But but it is fun uh, and interesting to see some of these movements. Yes, Nick, it's one of those situations that is not all darkness, it's not all work requirements and similar things. It's a situation where we are seeing some opportunities for some really interesting types of uh, plans, including on you know single-payer public option plans, um, um, like Medicaid buy-in and the rest. So, so finally, uh, in today's lightning, um, we've known this has been coming for a while. It's been well signaled from CMS, but in a letter this week to the Medicaid uh, directors, CMS said that it will now, quote, support state efforts to test incentives that make participation in work or other community engagement a requirement for continued Medicaid eligibility. So this looks like it's an attempt to align Medicaid with, for example, SNAP and so on, uh, requiring 20 to 30 hours of work or community engagement per week. It's a nod backwards to the Elizabethan poor laws, and I suppose continues the new administration's journey away from viewing Medicaid as health insurance, designed to move us towards universality, uh, to uh, renewing its vision of it as merely a welfare benefit. The uh, information letter from CMS uh, tries hard to create justifications for the change, but I think we can expect multiple legal challenges because the Medicaid statute does not mention, quote, work, unquote, anywhere. I think almost as importantly as friend of the pod Emma Sando pointed out in an opinion piece, quote, the administration has created a solution to a problem that does not exist, unquote. I think that's right. And I actually wanted to tie this into another discussion that was about CHIP recently. I think that CBO came out with a figure that in fact, chip reauthorization would, in the end, cost the government nothing because of the type of savings that would end up occurring, you know, because of uh, early um, uh, care or vaccinations or things like that. And it reminds me of a really good essay I recently read by a sociologist, Will Davies, uh, also the author of a book called The Happiness Industry. But the more recent essay was called Incredible Neoliberalism. And the idea of this essay was that a lot of policy initiatives, both coming out of the May government in Britain and out of the Trump administration, um, were seeing a sort of neoliberalism that is really stripped of any patina of economic rationality. You know, it used to be that there'd be some sort of patina of economic rationality where there'd be the idea that people on benefits had to repay the benefits, you know, in order to keep the state on an even keel and avoid deficits, etc. Um, now we're seeing um, actual affirmative uh, costs imposed on the state simply in order to punish people. Um, also in this vein, they recently had a report that the IRS paid $20 million to private debt collectors to re recover $6 million of taxes from very low-income individuals. And so I think this is a part of the trend. This incredible neoliberalism trend is part of a trend to, to sort of move beyond any sort of economic rationale 
for austerity and for denying uh, care services money to the most disadvantaged to an outright sort of open season that is more reminiscent of a film like The Purge than of any uh, rational policy analysis. I was going to say, oh, well, let's move on to cheerier topics. But now as I look at the list of things that we've asked Zach <laughs> on to discuss, I'm, I'm not entirely sure about that. So the background here, Zach, if we can talk about uh, MIPS and MACRA, when that came out, I think there were a couple of emotions or reactions. First of all, it seemed extraordinarily complicated. It took a, a, a Pasquale-level uh, essay in one of our episodes um, <laughs> before, before I even got a broad sense of what it was doing. And the other emotion was, well, here really is something that is attempting to move the value ball a little bit further. Maybe it would help to just review a little bit the, the program and then explain what you think is going on with the new administration, both from MIPS and macro simplification to now perhaps a greater unraveling. Sure. Uh, thanks, Nick. I, I think it probably makes the most sense to do a, a quick summary of, of how we got here. Um, so when we're talking about macro and MIPS, of course, we're talking about the Medicare Access and CHIP reauthorization law that was passed in 2015 that outlawed the sustainable growth rate formula, which is what Medicare used to pay its physicians under Part B, and it replaced SGR with a dual-track reimbursement mechanism, uh, one of those tracks being the alternative payment model system. So whether you're in an, an, the MSSP program or an ACO, uh, and the other track being what is MIPS, or Merit-Based Incentive Payment System. Uh, the first year of MIPS was 2017, so we just completed our first performance year. And the big thing that I think, the big thing that I think that MIPS did, uh, which was important, was that it changed the uh, value-based conversation in that it finally made it mandatory. And we finally had some teeth behind these uh, value-based ideas so that physicians who are not enrolled in an APM were required to be a part of MIPS. Um, what has happened now over the last couple of years, and in particular over the last six months or so, has unraveled some of this, as you mentioned, Nick. Um, it has made it less mandatory in nature. Uh, one of the major changes that the Trump administration made to the program, which we were talking about last summer, was expanding the exemptions. So it actually made it easier for rural providers and providers who saw a smaller volume of Medicare patients to opt out of the MIPS program. And so the program itself has actually shrunk quite a bit to the point where now we're thinking about 425,000 providers are going to be part of the MIPS program uh, for uh, for 2018, which is actually about one third of the 1.5 million providers who actually bill Part B. So we've had some changes that have been um, brought about. Uh, in addition to the exemption changes, there's also been some delays in some of the timing. So in 2017, the way MIPS was arranged, the performance in 2017 impacts the performance, or I'm sorry, the, the payment for 2019. So a provider submits data throughout throughout 2017 and however that provider does compared to peers has his or her reimbursement impacted in 2019. Uh, and again, it's based on four different metrics, cost, improvement activities, quality, and advancing care information. And the Trump administration has changed the percentages for a couple of those over the last six months. 
Now, what I think is probably most important to note about trying to discern a theme and using some of a CMS administrator Verma's remarks as a guide, it seems as though the Trump administration on the whole believes in value-based care. So I, I don't necessarily think that MACRA itself is at risk, but there's also an interest in the Trump administration and something that administrator Verma mentions a lot in provider flexibility. And so it seems as though the Trump administration is trying to find places within MIPS where it can give providers more choice and discretion in whether or not they participate. And of course, the problem with that is that's what led us to the to this problem in the first place was not enough mandatory enforcement for providers who were inefficient. And it's actually what led to the failure of the SGR and the replacement uh, with MIPS was under SGR, physicians had no real incentive to care about the efficiencies that they delivered the Medicare program. And so under MIPS, we actually do have some efficiencies that are built into the system, but allowing providers to either get out from under uh, the uh, the program through an exemption uh, or enroll in an APM, which also its definition has been widening under the Trump administration, and I can talk about that as well, uh, allows providers to self-select out of the MIPS program. And, and it may be the case that these are the providers that we actually really want in the MIPS program to try to, to build in some efficiencies. And can I just ask one really elementary question? I apologize for it, but um, I'm just wondering in terms, I know over the past year, we've had a lot of exceptions or ability of certain, say, small practices to get out from under MIPS, et cetera. Are they going to have to do alternative payment models or are they effectively untouched by the whole um, MIPS uh, APM move? My understanding is that they are not required to join an APM. So the numbers that I have, I have 1.5 million totally billing Part B. I had before last summer an expectation of about uh, 570,000 of those providers being enrolled in MIPS. Uh, the Trump administration changed the lower end exemption from uh, providers who billed Medicare 30,000 and saw 100 beneficiaries all the way up to providers who build Medicare 90,000 and saw 200 beneficiaries. Uh, and so that number that we expected in MIPS dropped from 570 to about 420. So the numbers I have somewhere around 150,000 additional providers were exempted. Um, that is not even close to even half of the providers who bill Medicare. So we have about a million or more who are either exempted from MIPS due to the Trump administration's changes or are in enrolled in an APM, but uh, you do not have to be in an APM to qualify for one of the MIPS exemptions. Do we have a sense of where these changes in policy are coming from? I mean, is this coming from organized medicine that, you know, didn't enjoy incentive programs like meaningful use? that still rail against reimbursement models like RVUs, DRGs, all the coding they have to do? Or is this a more political back-to-the-market kind of model that's coming out of the administration? You know, it's really interesting. It's been something that I've been trying to discern to try to figure out who is driving this train. One thing that I think is, is worth noting that's that's fascinating in regards to its timing is just yesterday in uh, Modern Healthcare, uh, Virgil Dickinson, uh, Dixon had a piece in which he covered the decision of MedPAC, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, that voted 14 to 2 to basically recommend to Congress in March to repeal and 
and replace MIPS. Uh, it's a fascinating move. Um, MedPAC, of course, not necessarily a group that you might think would be uh, pushing um, for or against some of these changes in value-based payments. Uh, this is kind of an outgrowth from late 2017. There was a meeting among the commission in which there was some pretty strong critique of the MIPS program. Um, and what was interesting is in some of this reporting of the MedPAC vote, uh, it, it doesn't seem like physicians have had a strong reaction. In fact, uh, MedPAC has put forth just a couple of proposals, not fully baked, I think at this point, that could replace MIPS. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be the case that we're seeing a lot of physicians or providers who are out there commenting, uh, which is which is a little surprising. Um, so I'm not really sure where this is coming from. I mean, if you asked MedPAC as to why they're so negative on MIPS, they would say the burden on providers to comply with the data requirements is too onerous. Uh, the cost that providers have had to, to burden to make sure that they were complying with the, the data requirements for MIPS uh, has made the program uh, unsustainable. And that also, which I thought was interesting, the substantive data that's being collected is not is not helpful. Uh, MedPAC argued that we should be asking whether or not patients are experiencing improvement in care, good quality outcomes, instead of asking whether or not physicians are following practice guidelines or uh, implementing EHR requirements uh, or the like. So MedPAC, which often, of course, has a lot of power over what Congress decides to do, is vociferously uh, negative when it comes to MIPS and, and has been now over the last couple of months. I don't think it's necessarily from the provider community, but it could be. And it's it's just, it's hard to know. On, on that front also, it's hard to know exactly what's motivating the Trump administration uh, at CMS. Like I said, I think there's an interest in value-based payments. There have been a number of public statements made by Administrator Verma in which she seems to suggest that she is in, in favor of value-based payments, much more so than uh, previous HHS Secretary Price, who came out um, pretty critical of them. But it, it seems to be falling in line with this administration's theme, which is to allow, uh, like what you mentioned in the lightning round, uh, discretion, uh, waivers, uh, exceptions uh, to not only states, for instance, in the Medicaid program, but also to providers who see these uh, government requirements as, as too onerous. I just wanted to channel something from one of our past guests, Deborah Stone, who talked has talked in her work about the failures of data gathering to fully reflect the complexity of care provision. And one thing I'm wondering, Zach, is, you know, I have fallen a bit behind on this reimbursement uh, reform area. I'm wondering if, are you seeing any responses from providers, um, commentary in the trade press, other areas that the four categories of physician performance, and by the way, just to back up, I guess, a few steps, I, I think under MIPS, there are four different categories, each with, you know, what, eight or nine indicators that um, people are measured against. And then I was wondering if you, it, it, there, if people are expressing concerns that they do not adequately capture what we really care about healthcare, and that's yet another sort of speed bump or um, obstacle to enthusiastic acceptance or advancing of the MIPS as a uh, as a tool of improving quality. No, I think that's a great question, and I think uh, one thing that I've seen over the last couple of weeks, um, there was this 
move in the fall to protect smaller providers. Uh, lots of the changes brought about um, in the Trump administration have been seemed focused on uh, on small outfits that have a hard time complying with the data collection requirements. Um, over the last couple of, of weeks, we've noticed uh, large health systems coming out critical of MIPS and MACRA saying, well, w- wait a minute, we're, we're having problems with this as well, um, just regarding data collection. Um, and I, 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 I do think it highlights something, which is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's onerous. It is onerous for physicians. Um, there has also been some negative reaction in the community about the individual nature of the MIPS program, that it isn't the case that we're viewing health systems as a whole, uh, or we're seeing, we're, you know, judging providers on how well they integrate uh, in their care team, but we're actually comparing individual physicians against their peers. And that was one of the other points of critique from MedPAC was, well, you know, wait a minute, we're talking about efficiencies and we're talking about collaboration in other parts of Medicare reimbursement, particularly in the APMs all over the place. Why is it that MIPS is focused so heavily on the individual? And think of how burdensome that is for each individual physician, each of these 400,000 some physicians who do have to comply with the data collection. There's a, there's been a kind of a footnote argument in what MedPAC has been saying as well, which picks up on, on what you referenced, Frank, which is the these, these data points, even if they're accurate, which many of them are reliant on physicians to self-select certain criteria, which also complicates the data collection process, um, but goes back to this kind of larger point that is this even what we really want to measure? Do we really focus or should we really focus on uh, improvement activities? And should we ask whether or not um, there is uh, meaningful use um, being met uh, under the advancing care information? Or should there be a more holistic metric where we actually ask whether or not the entire care team was successful and look at patient outcomes from a from a higher level potentially. So I think that's a, a question worth asking. I think that's probably going to continue to dog MIPS or whatever potentially comes after it. And just to follow that up with, I think, a Tarian point, uh, which is that, um, as you mentioned, Zach, some of the meaningful use uh, issues were rolled into um, either the APM evaluation or the MIPS type evaluation. It seems as though the broader press is picking up on a theme that I think is was in Nick's work for several years, which is that uh, failure of failures of interoperability, problems of data blocking, other issues are really impeding the ability of um, physicians to communicate with each other and impeding data liquidity to quite an extent. Do you think that's going to be on the agenda here at all, or do you think that that just has to be ad- ad- addressed in another uh, another way? I think that's a really good good question. Something to think about. Uh, going forward, the challenges of um, data data interoperability, as well as just uh, collection and submission, as I mentioned, really were what the Trump administration hung its hat on um, back in the summer when it changed a lot of its exemptions to MIPS and said, you know, listen, uh, these providers just do not have the ability to provide the data that CMS needs to, to, to be a part of this program. There's been some interesting writing since on that point that, that basically, no, it's, it's these providers who, who may need some assistance and who actually could benefit the most 
from what the MIPS program does. Uh, there's a great blog post from David Intracasso uh, on health affairs that, that talks about this, that actually there are, there are um, advantages uh, available, particularly the incentives in the MIPS program for small providers if they could just get over the hump, um, if they could just get their uh, data collection and, and reporting mechanism up and running, then there are some really positive things in, in a MIPS-like program for them. So I, I think that's a major challenge going forward. Uh, and there does not seem to be a real interest, at least in what I've seen, in addressing some of those problems. In fact, uh, you know, as you mentioned, MIPS is so complicated, it takes a lot of time to kind of read through and get your head around it. There are still lots of dark corners that you read about that providers are saying, well, we think the rule's intended to, to work in this way, but it hasn't really been thought through in the way that, that you would have expected it to be. Uh, and that's just, I think that's probably normal in a new reimbursement system. It's going to take some time. Um, the issue now, of course, is changing midstream. We just finished our first year performance year. Some providers, in fact, coming out after the MedPAC news earlier this week said, we're already implementing this. Uh, we can't change midstream. Uh, we've already put a lot of money on the on these data interoperability points and uh, etc. And going backwards is, is going to hurt us. So there's a lot of confusion in the provider community right now. First of all, about what's coming, about what changes are still in the pipeline, and about um, where exactly the Trump administration is going to focus its resources next. Yeah, I guess about the only real certainty there is, is that Moore's law does not apply to the electronic health records industry. I was actually looking at some <laughs> of the 21st Century Cures Act provisions on interoperability and information blocking today. And boy, did Congress ever punt those issues to the national coordinator. They're almost unanswerable, I think, some of the uh, the definitional regulations that they call for and so on. As for the MedPAC stuff, I guess my reaction was we still have a MedPAC. <laughs> but uh, uh, so moving us on, just moving on just a little bit, while I, I've always found uh, MIPS and APM to be uh, rather a slog, I have been able to wrap my hand around the Innovation Center uh, projects that CMS launched under the Obama administration, particularly the Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement Model, the CJR program, and also the Cardiac Rehab Payment Model and similar, these bundle payments models. And they're, they're not new. They weren't new under the Obama administration you know, end-state renal disease began these back in the 1980s. Um, we've had them for dialysis and other things like that. So uh, uh, they weren't uh, revolutionary, but they were a step forward. And even today, in a JAMA piece, Dr. Wed Hera and his colleagues have a very sharply worded critique of the cancellation, in particular of the cardiac bundle payment system, as a step in in the wrong direction for pursuing a healthcare system that focuses on value and not volume. So I wonder if you'd like to roll those issues uh, into the discussion and maybe explain a little bit how they differ from uh, a MIPS-type model. Uh, obviously, they they, uh, uh, they apply to hospitals, uh, but uh, any other differences or similarities you'd like to point out? So this was also uh, big news over the last, uh, toward the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. So the Trump administration announced that it was canceling the cardiac rehabilitation incentive payment model and episode payment model, as well as, as you mentioned, Nick, the CJR, the Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacement. These bundled payment 
programs were mandatory for hospitals. Uh, the CJR program actually applied to 67 different geographic areas across the country, uh, which covered about 800 hospitals and required them to uh, basically kind of inculcate these bundled payment values into their uh, care coordination. What the Trump administration did on that front was it reduced the amount of geographic areas that the model will cover from 67 to 34. And so now the amount of hospitals that will participate is about cut in about half, about 470, at least reportedly, will still participate in CJR, although we're not totally sure um, if that if that actually will occur, at least at this point. The cardiac rehabilitation incentive payment model and episode uh, payment model um, was forecast to save Medicare about $170 million over five years. It required hospitals to better coordinate um, cardiac procedures. Uh, I've written, of course, in the past over the use of cardiac stents and unnecessary treatment in this area. And so the idea is bundled payments were needed in cardiac practice. Um, So the cancellation of those models is concerning. Um, At the same time, earlier, I believe this week or late last week, we we, uh, received news that the Trump administration was rolling out a new uh, bundled payment model Uh, Of course, keeping with the theme of what we've talked about to this point, um, strictly voluntary uh, and will meet the requirement of advanced uh, alternative payment models, that definition. Uh, We don't know a ton about it yet. We do know that it will pay uh, bundles for 32 different types of care episodes. It will start in October and start enrolling interested providers. Uh, It will be temporary in nature, so it will be based on a quality performance over a 90-day period. It will likely have incentives uh, for value and hospitals will be eligible for bonuses. So I think what's interesting to note is in addition to the cancellation of the two or three, I guess, uh, or reduction, I guess you could say, uh, of the bundled payment models that we've seen, we also have um, a, a new payment model, which is not of the same species, I think, uh, when we're thinking about the fact that it is a voluntary uh, APM. What what else is interesting is it highlights the way that, that the Trump administration is um, potentially changing uh, participation in MIPS uh, from a different direction, and that is by widening the definition of what it means to be a part of an APM. So the providers who could be enrolled in this new voluntary bundled payment APM that the Trump administration has just rolled out would be uh, exempt from MIPS as well. So you see how all of this kind of fits together, and then you see the larger theme of moving toward voluntariness away from uh, the mandatory nature of these of these other bundled payment systems. Terrific. And now for something completely different to sort of close us out uh, this uh, podcast, I was wondering if you might be able to comment, Zach, on the Maryland price gouging law, the Maryland drug price gouging law, because there was a lawsuit uh, back in September, I think a judge refused to block the Maryland price gouging law. And I was wondering if you could sort of bring us up to date and comment on what your thoughts are on this uh, state-level effort to control drug prices? Sure. Thanks, Frank. I think it it highlights this this new era uh, in health policy that we're in, which is to look at the state level. There's a lot of interesting experimentation going on at the state level, and this is uh, might be the subject of some future writing that I'll be doing. But Maryland made a lot of news last year when it, it passed uh, its prohibition against price gouging for essential off-patent or generic drugs law. Of course, it was challenged. It was upheld. 
held. It's now pending. An appeal is, is pending before uh, the Fourth Circuit. I think oral arguments actually are coming up. It's a uh, lawsuit that's brought by the Association of Accessible Medicines, co- uh, challenging the law uh, on constitutional grounds for being too vague and for seeking uh, to regulate interstate commerce. What the law actually does is it empowers the Maryland Attorney General to review any price increases uh, of drugs that are being sold uh, within the state of Maryland and ask uh, pharmaceutical companies for uh, justification for increased prices. It's limited to the non-competitive market, so a market that's made up of three or fewer manufacturers, only uh, off-patent drugs. It does not apply to biologics or any other type of specialty drug, so it is limited in its application, but it gives the Maryland Attorney General a lot of power in asking um, questions of pharmaceutical companies. And as we've seen uh, over the last couple of years, Uh, using the power um, of the spotlight to highlight uh, the rising cost of pharmaceutical drugs in the state. Um, So I've been I've been watching that case and I will I will continue to do so. But it's not the only one. There are a number of other states that have been operating in this space. Nevada and Louisiana both have established new laws on drug pricing transparency. Nevada's focused on insulin. Uh, Louisiana's asks uh, drug companies to report their wholesale acquisition costs prices and to maintain a drug pricing website uh, where providers can go. Uh, And then you've also got New York and uh, Massachusetts. Both have been operating uh, in the space as well. New York, a a drug expenditure cap last year, um, new rules about whether uh, when that cap is exceeded, what the state can do when it comes to prior authorization for the state Medicaid program. So the idea being if New York exceeds its prescription drug budget, Budget, uh, by a certain percentage, then the state is empowered to uh, put in place prior authorization before those uh, certain drugs are used. Massachusetts even goes uh, further by saying uh, that the Massachusetts Medicaid program seeking an 1115 waiver um, should be able to create a formulary where the Massachusetts Medicaid program would only be uh, basically giving the green light to providers for Medicaid patients for drugs that are on that formulary and that Massachusetts would use cost uh, in in its determination of whether a drug uh, fit on the formulary. So there's a lot of really interesting work being done. Maryland's is by far the splashiest uh, and because it also pulls in this kind of strange um, legal rules about um, anti-gouging statutes and whether they actually could be applied in healthcare. You know, the government actually suspending the private market. Uh, Usually you read gouging in the context of an natural disaster. Um, Have we gotten to that point in pharmaceutical drug pricing? I think a lot of people would say that we have. Of course, it's it's not all trending in the same direction. The state of Ohio had the chance to pass a law last uh, November that would have given its Medicaid program the ability to increase discounts and match the VA discounts, which are much more uh, for state-based programs. But thanks to a, a very large amount of money spent by the pharmaceutical industry in the state of Ohio and a number of, of ads on the airway, 
waves to which I can attest visiting my in-laws in Cincinnati in October, uh, that measure was beat back uh, at the ballot box quite emphatically. 80% of voters voted it uh, voted it down. So it, it's not the case that we're moving quickly everywhere on this, but there are definite um, signs that states are getting serious about the cost of prescription drugs. And in many ways, it makes sense that it's going to start at the state level because their Medicaid budgets are so impacted by drugs that raise their prices. Thank you, Zach. That is such a great overview of the current state of play. And actually, just to tout a uh, Maryland event, we're actually going to be having former Quill guests, Aaron Kesselheim and Amit Sarpatwari, on with uh, some Maryland policymakers, with Frank Palumbo from our pharmacy school, and some other folks to have a symposium on drug prices on the afternoon of March 8th. Uh, so we're really looking forward to that and hoping to really get into the weeds on the topic. Oh, that's great, Frank. And let's hope there'll be a uh, registration link in the show notes, my friend. I will ask our PR office for that as soon as possible. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and on that note, that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Buck uh, for joining us, Zach. It's always such a great pleasure. The pleasure is mine. Thank you so much. We post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank is at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.